Father, we just thank you right now for the word of the living God. We know, Lord, that we're approaching the sacred word. We're approaching the living word, the quick and powerful word. And Lord, we just thank you since it's the word of God, we treat it with honor and with awe and with with respect and with humility that you would teach us tonight. We ask you to send, uh, Lord, the great teacher of the church, the Holy Spirit of God, to teach us tonight, open our understanding and help us to grasp what the Spirit of the Lord moved on the Apostle Paul to write, not only for the Philippian church back then, but for Turning Point Church right now. And we thank you for it. Will you breathe a prayer, dear church, and just say, Lord, tonight, speak to me. Renew my mind. Transform me from faith to faith, glory to glory, in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell them, good to see you in the house of God tonight. Amen. Amen. All right. Uh, How many of you read ahead? Did anybody read ahead? Oh, good. More than last time. All right. Philippians 2. Now, if you have your Bibles, um, Philippians 2. Okay? Uh, Of course, we've got it up there for you on the screen and whatnot. But let's, last time we closed out chapter 1 talking about the suffering that Christians can expect to incur. Let me ask, how many of you have ever suffered, either emotionally, physically, uh, for standing up for Christ? You know, you got um, persecuted, rejected, ridiculed, anything like that? Raise your hands. Okay? The Bible promises is not a promise we want to claim. But if we live godly in Christ Jesus, we shall suffer persecution. And more and more and more in our current culture, it's getting worse by the day with the persecution of believers. Uh, I'm kind of amazed at what's happening in America when it comes to Christians now being openly uh, ostracized for just standing on the word of God. But the Bible promises, like I said, a promise we don't want to claim, but that'll happen. So God is looking for Christians with a spine, amen, Amen? who won't... uh, cave in the least little resistance. So anyway, as chapter two begins, we see there's apparently a problem with strife and division, uh uh-oh, in the Philippian church. You mean there's strife and division in a church? That's supposed to make you laugh. Okay. But in the Philippian church, there was, there was trouble. So it, and the first two verses, Philippians two, one and two, Paul writes this, therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. Everybody say like-minded. That's a slick way of saying get along. Amen? Having the same love, being of what? One accord, not divided, but of one accord, of one mind. Now, one thing that might be in Paul's mind right about here is what we find him addressing in chapter 4 of Philippians and verse 2. He names two women. You know, Paul named names. Did you ever notice that? Paul talked about Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. Demas forsook me, having loved this present world, uh, so on and so forth. He named names. And here he's naming two women's names. I implore Euodia, and I implore Sintichi. I've never met a Euodia or a Sintichi. But it's two women, and he says, I implore them to be of the same mind in the Lord. In other words, I implore these two women to get along. Now, who were they? What's he talking about? Well, these are two women that we find elsewhere in the New Testament who were in leadership positions in the church in Philippi. And they were apparently at odds with each other, and it was affecting the whole body of believers. Have you ever noticed how you can have a little problem with a few people in a church, and it reaches out and touches everybody? It's like that pebble that's thrown in the pond. You can just throw a little pebble in a pond, in a glassy pond, and the ripples go out and touch the whole pond all the way to the banks. And it's that way when trouble happens in a church. That's why we're all responsible for the the unity of the church. 
Amen? We're all responsible to, to get along, to be forgivers. One of the signs of immaturity is holding grudges, uh, carrying a chip on your shoulder, uh, being easily offended. And I can't tell you how many people through the years I've seen leave church over a little offense. It took the devil nothing. It didn't take him a missile, just a slingshot, just a little pebble of offense. And they can't handle it and they're gone. But mature people either overlook offenses or forgive and move on realizing uh, this little offense is not worth my destiny, my call, my fruitfulness, my nothing. Uh, it's not my walk with God. Amen? Amen? So these two women were having a problem and Paul basically tells them, I want you to get together. I want you to get over it. I want you to forgive one another and quit letting it affect the church. But now we'll deal with that later. Back uh, in chapter two, he gives us several reasons to walk in unity. He said, if there's any consolation in Christ, now consolation means encouragement. So he's saying, if Jesus has encouraged you, then encourage one another. Amen. How many of you were encouraged by Jesus this week? Doesn't he encourage you? In, in your heart, he encourages you, doesn't he? All right, he says, if Jesus encouraged you, then let it spread. Encourage one another. Then, if any comfort of love. So he's saying, if Jesus' love has comforted you, likewise, comfort one another. And I know the answer. He's comforted many of you this week with his love. Amen. He says, then, if there's any, cons- uh, any fellowship of the Spirit, if you've had fellowship with one another in the past, Paul is saying, get back to it. Don't let these little differences pull you apart. Nothing will kill a church quicker than discord. Let me ask you a question. What do you think does the most damage to churches? Um, immorality in the church? Drug issues in the church? False doctrine in the church? Or discord in the church? Oh, it's discord. I mean, you didn't have to think about it, did you? When, when the devil can bring discord into a church, he ruins the anointing. Because the Bible says in the Psalms that where there is unity, that is where God commands the blessing. So we need to be aware Satan is always, always, always out to bring a problem in a local church that brings discord. Because if he can do that, he can take the anointing and the power out of that church. Amen. He says, and then if you have any affection and mercy, if you've had any of these things amongst yourself, consolation, comfort, fellowship, affection, mercy, he says, fulfill my joy by returning to those things and in so doing, ditch the strife. Can we say those three words together? Ditch the strife. Don't let strife in the church. Amen. Now, next, Paul's going to lay out three examples of the kind of attitude and mindset that they should cultivate. He said, let me give you three examples with three different people on how to walk so that strife does not destroy your local fellowship. Now, how many of you want Turning Point to be in unity? Amen. Amen? How many of you want to see us really do some damage to the devil's kingdom and reach the world? Amen? Starting right here. Well, of course, I want to be in church, in a church that is really seeing some fruit, all right, and seeing souls saved and seeing the devil lose souls and seeing God's people grow up into maturity. That's my prayer all the time. So Paul says, let me give you some examples of three people uh, that'll help you to walk in an attitude where strife can't get in. And here's the people, Jesus, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. So those are three examples he's going to give us in chapter two. Now, let me begin first with Jesus. He encourages them with the character qualities found in Jesus. He says, let me show you how Jesus walked, because the way Jesus walked, if we'll do what he did and have the attitude he had and look at people the way he did, there will never be strife. Discord will never destroy that body. So he says in verse three, he said, let's start out with Jesus' character. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Let me ask you, church, did Jesus ever do anything selfishly? Never. 
So he said, let nothing. How many things? Nothing. Now, if it weren't possible for us to walk on a level that we're not doing things out of selfish motives, he wouldn't tell us not to. So he says here, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each of you esteem others better than himself. Boy, doesn't that go against our culture of self? It's all about me, right? And the implication is clear. It's not all about us. That's a shock to some of you. Some of you watching by streaming video. It may be a shock that it's not about you. Because our culture says it's all about you. Everything is self. self Self-centered, selfish. Self-orientation. It's all self. Serving self. Putting self as number one. Aren't we told in our culture, you're number one. Take care of number one. But you know what? You're not number one, and I'm not number one. Uh, He's number one, and I'm somewhere down the scale. Amen? I'm not number one. Because when you make yourself number one, you are headed for misery, because God never made you to be number one. He He says, it's not about you. It's about him. It's about living out his purpose for us and not chasing selfish self-centered ambitions. So he says, don't let it be about you. Let it be about him. I I contend you're happiest when you find his will and do it. When you find his will and do it, that's where you're happy. And so, and then he, he deals with a conceit issue. There wasn't just a selfish ambition issue, but there's a conceit issue in the Philippian church. Rather than harboring conceit that says, you're better than others. Is that in our culture? You're better than others. And others are better than you. All right? No, that is not true. He says, rather than harboring conceit that says you're better than others, have the opposite attitude. It's even hard to say. Esteem others better than yourself. Now, let me tell you what that does not mean. Because I used to read that and say, So I'm supposed to look at others as being better than me, superior to me, of more value than me? No, that is not what he's saying. He's not saying deny your own gifts or constantly run yourself down. That's false humility. All right, false humility. Oh, no, no, I I can't do anything. I, I don't have any gifts. I'm just a low life. I, you know, I can't do it. I'm not anointed. There's no purpose. I'm just a lowly, humble servant of God. No, that's false humility. The meaning here is showing preferential treatment to others. Seek the good of others first. Think of others rather than just yourself. That's what he's saying. Verse 4, let each of you look out, not only for his own interests, but also for what everyone, say it with me, the interests of others. So I'm to look out for the interests of others, not just my own interests. He didn't tell me not to take care of my own interests. He just said, don't make that the only interest you're taking care of. And so when you see other people with needs, try putting them first above yourself and see how blessed you are. How blessed you are. We were eating out last night um, for my daughter's best friend's uh, birthday. And we were, there was four of us and we, we saw four policemen come in. And, and they, were, they sat at a table across from us. And so we started looking at them. And then uh, we thought almost all at once, we all thought together, why don't we pool some money and pay for their meal? Why not just pay for their meal? Well, are we millionaires? No. Did we feel that? Yes. But we thought, why not put them above ourselves, something we might want to do with that money? Why not put them above us? And so we told the waitress, don't tell them where it came from. Just, we, we pulled the money, put it together, some cash, and, and, the, and when they got ready to pay their bill, the waitress said, uh, uh, it's been paid. Now, oh, 
it was the shock on their face. And, and, and did we need for them to know that it was us? No. Am I hoping that way down the road, one of them might pull me over and I'll go, I, I'm the one that gave you that money. No, no, no. It wasn't for my own interests. It was just to be a blessing. So when they walked out, they had no idea who did it, but we felt so blessed putting someone else above what we, our flesh, might have wanted to do with that money. See, you put others above yourself. Come on, give the Lord a hand. Amen. Now, Christians are to strive, Paul says, to think like Jesus did. He says in verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let this mind, the attitude Jesus had towards other people, his servant heart, his always putting others first, let that mind be in you, which was also in him. Christians are described to think like he did, to put on the mind of Christ, to adopt his attitude towards self and towards other people. We're told to put on that mind. Now, it's not going to come and put you in a chokehold and make you be like Jesus, right? No. He says, put it on. Everybody say with me, put it on. And by faith, we're told over and over, especially Pauline teaching, the teachings of Paul, I don't even know that Peter ever said it, but Paul was always saying, put on love, put on mercy, put on Jesus. Now, how many of you know how to put on a shirt? Raise your hands in church tonight. How many of you know how to put on a coat? How many of you know how to take off a coat? All right, then it's the same verbiage. In the same way, the more you learn about Jesus, the more you're able to just put him on put him on. By faith, I'm just going to put on this attitude. I'm just going to wear this attitude. Before I walk out of the door in the morning, I'm just going to wear this attitude. I'm going to, I'm going to dress myself in this attitude. It's just that simple. It's not deeply spiritual. You're not going to fall into a trance and God do a brain transplant with you and, 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 and me and put in the mind of Christ. Uh-uh. The more we know about him, the more we know to put on. We're to be put-ons, theologically speaking. So you put on Jesus, put on Jesus. This week I said to myself, I don't know where I was, but it doesn't matter where, because anywhere in our culture, you go out during the day, you have got to put on patience. I mean, there is no way you can make it in a city with all the traffic and all the mayhem and all the people and all the attitudes you run into, if, if you've got to put on patience. So patience doesn't come and put you in a headlock and say, all right, I'm here. Now you're going to be patient. No, you've got to put it on. Say, I'm going to put on Jesus. Part of Jesus is patience. I'm not going to lose my temper. I'm not going to lose my peace. I'm not going to get mad at um, the woman who's in front of me at the grocery store with three totally loaded down uh, carts of groceries and then she can't find her card and then she remembers something that she forgot and tells the woman, I'll be right back and you're standing there and, and you're thinking, I can't believe this and you've got to tell yourself, all right, I can get into the flesh here or I can put on patience. Come on, everybody, don't shout me down. Put it on. Now, I can assure you it won't come overnight because we are selfish and we are self-centered by nature. But Paul says, work on it. Let this same mind and attitude be cultivated in you. Now, next, the apostle launches into the most theologically profound description of Christ's great condescension toward the human race found anywhere in Scripture. Look at what he says, verse 6. Who, being in, say it with me, the form of God. Now, this is deep stuff. We're wading in deep theological waters here. So put on your thinking cap. Let's listen to the word. Who, being in the form of God, Jesus did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Now, what does it mean he was in the form of God? This means that the whole nature 
and essence of deity was in Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to hear me tonight because as a teacher of the Bible, here's one thing I want my church to fully understand about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, okay? That the whole nature and essence of deity was in Jesus Christ. He was God the Son come to earth to save us. He was the Son of God and God the Son. He was all God, all man, all man, all God. He was God the Son. John writes in his gospel, in the beginning was the Word. The Word is Jesus now, capital W. And the Word, look at, was with God, where? In the beginning, in heaven. And the Word was, say it, God. So the Word was with God in the beginning, and the Word was God. He was God. Jesus was not a first century hippie walking around in sandals with long hair saying cool things to people. He was God incarnate. He was God in flesh. When Jesus looked at you, it was God looking at you. That's how he read your mail because there's no surprises with God. He was God. Paul wrote in Colossians, for in him, that is Jesus, dwells all the fullness of, wow, what? The Godhead bodily in bodily form. He's telling us while Jesus was in bodily form, walking around on earth, going from town to town, village to village, doing what he did, while he was walking around in bodily form, all the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in him. So this next truth is crucial. If you don't get anything else tonight, please get this. When Jesus came to earth, he never left his deity behind. Okay, never. Not once did Jesus ever cease to be God in heaven or earth, not once. Some erroneously teach that he did. There are people that teach, I've read it myself, that they teach that when Jesus did miracles, for instance, he did not do them as God. But he learned to do miracles by faith like we do. No. No. He was God. He did his miracles as God. As God. He didn't have to learn to walk by faith like we do. He did his miracles as God. Some teach that on the cross, when Jesus took our sins on him, that he became sin, literally, and for a brief time on the cross, when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That then at that moment, he lost his deity and became sin for us, became a sinner for us. Okay, listen, church, God can't be a sinner. God can't be a sinner. How can God sin who sent his son to die for sins? He can't be a sinner. Jesus was God on the cross. So when he died and and took our sin upon himself, he didn't become a sinner. No, he became a sin sacrifice. He was our sacrifice, our sin sacrifice. He died in our stead, but on the cross, he did not lose his deity and become a sinner. If he became a sinner on the cross, he lost his deity on the cross. And Jesus never, ever, once, for a microsecond, lost his deity. Never once. Never. He didn't lose his deity in Joseph's household. Not in his ministry and not on the cross. He always maintained his deity, always. God died in our stead on the cross in the person of Jesus Christ. Try wrapping your mind around that. I can't. That God died on the cross in the person of Christ for my sins. My mind becomes a pretzel when I try to grasp that. But it's true. I don't need to understand it. I just need to accept it. Amen? 
So watch what Paul says. He says, so since he never lost his deity, he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. In other words, he didn't have to steal equality with God. He already had equality with God because he was God the Son. Amen? Everybody say deep stuff. This is deep stuff. Deep stuff. Muhammad didn't do that. Buddha didn't do that. No religious, Confucius didn't do that. No religious teacher or personality in all of history died on the cross as God in our stead. That's why there is salvation in none other. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And we must come to the Father only and exclusively through him. Amen? Amen. Amen. Then next, Paul goes further into describing Jesus' condescension. says, he made himself of no reputation, verse 7. And this should be chapter 2, verse 7. I messed up there. That's 2, 7, not 1, 7. My fault, my bad. But I'm forgiven. Amen. So chapter 2, verse 7. But made himself of no reputation taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Now, when it says he made himself no reputation, it means he emptied himself, but not of his deity. He did not empty himself of his deity, but in the act of coming to earth and becoming a servant, Jesus deliberately abandoned the glory and the majesty he had with the Father before the world began. I mean, he left a sweet gig and came to earth. But he didn't leave his deity. He just came to earth and left the glory, left the context of heaven, left all of that. But he didn't leave his deity. He brought that with him. Amen. And he humbled himself further to become a servant. Can you, can you wrap your head around that? God became a servant. But guess what now? Watch this. Jesus was not the servant of men. He didn't come to serve men. He came to serve the Father. Jesus said that he had come to do only those things that please the Father. You can read that in John 18, 29. Jesus said, whatever I see the Father doing, that's what I do. Because I came to please the Father. So he didn't come to serve sinful men, to do what they told him to. He only did what the Father told him to and showed him to do. That's what he did. And says Paul, he came in the likeness of men. That means he truly became a man. He truly became a flesh and blood man. But the kind of man God intended for all of us to be before the fall. His spirit was always ruled by the Holy Spirit. His intellect, his emotions, his will, his nature, his person, his personality, senses and physical powers were all under the control of the Holy Spirit at all times throughout his entire life. Can you imagine living a life where not one time did you ever have to look up and say, oops, Lord, forgive me. Oops, I shouldn't have done that, said that, thought that, gone there, forgive me. He never had to do it. He never had to do it. Isn't that amazing? So the Holy Spirit ruled him at all times. Now next, Paul deals with the passion of Christ. Verse eight, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now we're getting into an amazing realm. The most difficult thing about Christianity for Paul, when he was still the persecutor Saul, was the cross, the cross. Saul, could not wrap his mind around how God's Messiah could possibly hang on a tree for our sins. Because he knew the Bible had said, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. For Saul, this was impossible. No way did the Messiah prophesied by the prophets hang on an accursed tree. How could that be? The God's Messiah hung on an accursed tree. This was non-negotiable for Saul. From then on, listen, uh, one of the reasons he persecuted Christianity, he felt that Christianity debased 
what he understood the Messiah to be. He felt Christianity was debasing it. He said, you're kidding me. The Messiah of God has come to earth and he hung on an accursed tree? No, no, I can't accept that. I don't believe that. I don't receive that. As a matter of fact, I'm going to attack that because God's Messiah is going to be exalted. He's going to be a world political ruler. He's going to rule the world. He's going to deliver us from Rome. Uh, uh, he's going to be an incredibly exalted person. He's not going to be somebody like Jesus and whipped and beaten and ridiculed and mocked and despised and hung on a cross unrecognizable. No way. And Saul rebelled against that until he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you? I am Jesus who you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. In other words, you're under such conviction, Paul. You're trying to kick against the conviction that the Holy Spirit is putting on you. And, and Saul, um, listen, um, I am, I am here to let you know that I'm the Messiah. I'm the Messiah. From then on, he served him. And from then on, what had been the impossible thing about Christianity became the most impressive thing about Christianity. After his conversion, Paul's premier message, you've read all of Paul's writings in the New Testament, many of you, his premier message became the cross of Christ, right? Let me give you some examples. I have been crucified with Christ. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then for the message of what? The cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So Jesus, writes Paul to the Philippians, humbled himself and obeyed the Father all the way to the cross. I want you to think about how much Jesus humbled himself. Let me just give you a few of them. He was in a downward, he went, humbled himself here, then he went down here, then he went down here, all the way to the cross. He humbled himself to leave heaven's glory for a dark and dirty earth. He humbled himself to become a man. He humbled himself to live in Joseph and Mary's little house and learn the carpentry trade, especially when he stopped to think the wood he was working with, he created right? He said, oh, I remember creating this tree. This is cedar. This is oak. This is, right? It's kind of a mind blower. I mean, here is this, here is this God in flesh building chairs, houses, whatever Joseph's carpentry shop got an order for. And yet he's sitting there knowing that all of it flow through his fingertips. Is that a mind blower? Come on, you have to stop and think about the word. He humbled himself further to endure the insults and the blasphemies of men as he walked from town to town during his earthly ministry. He humbled himself in allowing men, this is what gets me, the men he had created to beat him, torture him, mock him, He humbled himself to stretch out his hands and feet to allow the nails to be driven through them into the cross. Starting with leaving heaven, he humbled himself all the way to the cross. You can't go any lower than that. There's no lower than that. Tell me lower than that. There isn't anything lower than that. But while we thank God that Jesus died on the cross for us, listen, we can't leave him there. No, God did not leave Jesus subject to his parents. He didn't leave him in the hands of wicked men, and he didn't leave him on the cross of shame. Paul says in verse 9, therefore God has also, say it with me, highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. And so here we have an irreversible kingdom principle. You've got to go down in order to go up in the kingdom of God. If you want to go up, you got to go down. The way up is down. The way up is not up. The way up is down. 
For the humble shall be exalted, but the proud will be brought low, the Bible says. So if you want to be promoted in the kingdom of God, you got to humble yourself. Christ is our pattern. He went all the way from heaven to the cross. There's no greater humility. And Paul says, let this mind be in you. Let this mind be in you to humble yourself. He says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you in due time. But if you promote yourself, whatever position you reach, you got to keep yourself there because you're the one who got yourself there. But if he puts you there, then he keeps you there. Amen? Come on. So no one could ever humble themselves to the level Jesus did. And therefore, nobody's ever going to be promoted higher than Jesus has. But he isn't just exalted. Paul says he's highly exalted with a name greater than all others. And how great is the name of Jesus? Verses 10 and 11, chapter 2, Philippians. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven. Boy, I love this list. Those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth are all going to bow. And every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's a lot of tongues. Okay? First, he says things in heaven will bow and confess. That means every angel, every cherubim, every seraphim, every archangel, including any other principality or power existing in God's heavenly abode, will bow to Jesus Christ and confess openly that he is Lord. Amen. Second, things on earth. All of the masses of mankind on earth, think about this. How many people on earth now? I think 7 billion. There's 7 billion or so people on earth. All those knees are going to bow. We're talking 14 billion knees. 7 billion tongues. All the masses of mankind on earth that presently offer Jesus no homage, no respect, no affection will bow to him. Every atheist that mocks him, every agnostic that says, I don't know, will bow. So will the countless numbers of those that have heard the gospel and rejected it. They will bow. Also, the majority of earth dwellers that never once in any given day think of him for even a microsecond, they will bow. He said every. He didn't say some. He didn't say most. He said every. Every tongue. All knees. What an awesome day that will be. And finally, things under the earth. Here's where it gets really good. The unsaved dead. The unsaved dead. They're in Hades right now. I've taught you on that on Wednesday nights. The unsaved dead that have rejected Christ, died in their sins, are in Hades right now. They're not in the lake of fire. Nothing's in the lake of fire. The devil's not there. Nothing's in the lake of fire. It awaits future judgment. But right now, Hades is filled with the souls of those who died in their sins. And John the Revelator said, when the great white throne judgment comes, Hades will spew out of it the dead that are in it, and they will go before the great white throne judgment. It's one of the most somber passages in all the word of God. And they will bow the knee. Those who hated Christ will be there. Those who spawn false doctrines with which they destroy millions of lives, they will be there. Satan and his hordes of demons will bow, confessing before all the heavenly hosts that he is Lord. Do you know that Lucifer, son of the morning, the devil, slewfoot, split hoof, our enemy will say he is Lord and will bow. It's going to come. I pray God lets the church see that one. Bottom line, here's the bottom line. This is, this is powerful. Bow now or bow then. Confess now or confess then. Either way, everybody's going to bow to Jesus and every tongue is going to confess. You can do it now and get saved or you can do it later. Next, Paul makes everything practical. And that's what Paul always does. If you read all the Pauline writings, all the epistles, he always starts with heavy theology, and then he makes it practical. 
So now he's going to go to practical application. And he says, therefore. Now, whenever you see a therefore, you need to see what it's there for. Therefore means what I just said, in light of what I just said, let me tell you what that means, therefore, for you right now. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. In light of all this heavy-duty truth about Jesus, therefore, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, first, he's saying in light of all you just learned about the humility and the obedience of Jesus Christ, How can you and I do any differently as the church? When you look at the way Jesus humbled himself from heaven to the cross and obeyed God right down to the end, then Paul is saying, so too should we have this mind in us. How can we not obey and and humble ourselves when our great example is our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ? But then what does he mean when he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling? If salvation is a gift, why do I have to work it out? Because I thought I can't be saved by works. And that sounds like I got to do something works-wise to be saved. But that's not what he's saying. Here's what he's saying. It's like this. If someone were to give you a gold mine with the complete title deed, you would immediately be a rich person. They gave you a gold mine. You're rich now. But the gold mine wouldn't do you much practical good unless you went and began to work it. Right? Mining it for gold. Digging for the nuggets. Putting sweat to bringing the gold out of the ground. You got to bring the gold out of the ground. What good does it do you to have the gold mine if you're not mining the gold? Yeah, theoretically you're rich, but you don't have the gold. You're not mining the gold. So yeah, you're rich, but where's the gold? It's the same way with our salvation. Exactly. The moment we're saved, we are spiritually rich. But we need to then set to work to mining the spiritual gold of our salvation. By digging. Everybody say digging. Digging into the scriptures, for instance. How many of you know there's gold there? David said, your word is better to me than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. So digging into the scriptures, spending quality time with the Savior, seeking first the kingdom of God, putting effort to it. I've received now more riches than somebody with a gold mine. But now I'm supposed to go work it, dig it, get it, bring it into my possession. Obtaining the promises, seeking the face of the Lord, digging every day into the riches of the kingdom, making myself every day richer and richer and richer in the things of God. I admit to you, I'm greedy when it comes to the things of God. I want to be exceedingly rich in the things of God. Jesus put it this way. He said, let me tell you what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's like a treasure, a man discovered in a field. And in his excitement, he sold everything he owned to get enough money just to buy the field and get the treasure too. In other words, he gave everything to lay hold of that treasure. I pastored, I can't believe this, but I have pastored 36 years. Started when I was eight. I'm kidding. But I've been pastoring a long time. So I've seen all kinds of church folks. And let me tell you, I've seen that there are some people, they never really put sincere effort into mining the riches of the kingdom. They just, they just don't. They got saved. They got their ticket to heaven, their ticket to ride. Uh, when they die, they know they're going to heaven, and they kind of leave it there. And they never really pursue. They, they, can, they continue pursuing their own selfish interests. And, and they just never really produce much fruit. They just don't put much effort into it. But then I've seen people who just can't wait to dig into every day the riches of the kingdom. They just can't wait. And though they may have ebbs and flows and some ups and downs, consistently they stay with it. And through the years, they get richer and richer and more and more like him. 
which do you want to be? Because see, you can't give what you don't have. And you're not going to have what you don't mind for. Right? So to me, every day when I'm in the Word of God, every day when I'm in the Word, and I'm in it every day, not because I'm a preacher, even on Sunday mornings, and I'm not saying these things to pat myself on the back. Listen, I do it more out of need for God. I need Him. You know, I need Him. And, and, and so, but even on Sundays, when I'm going to preach to a lot of people and, and do three services, um, even on Sundays, I get into my own personal devotional before I touch the message because I want to mine that word. I want, I want the gold nuggets. I want what God wants to give me. And, and I never get into the word that I don't walk away going, wow, that's something I can think about today. That's a nugget. That's gold. Amen? Amen. Go ahead. Give God praise. That's all right. Now, Paul finishes out this, this thought with the encouragement that God is working in us to bring about his will. And we're almost done tonight. I'm dealing with two more verses, but here we go. Look what he says. He's going to use in two verses the word works twice. Okay? Here's the first one. Verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both the will and to do of his good pleasure. Now, in verse 12, he said, work out your own salvation. But here, he said, while you're working out, God is working in. He says, it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So again, in verse 12, he says, it's our responsibility to work out our salvation by mining those riches, being obedient to him and seeking his face. But while we're working it out, he's working in us both the, the desire and the power to please God. How many of you can say, I've got a holy motivation in me that I want to please the Lord? Amen. Come on. I've got a holy motivation. See, that's one of the true signs of salvation. You can say you're saved all day. But if I see in your life a, a real desire to please God, I know you're saved because that didn't come from your lower nature. That came from a new nature that God gave you that immediately wants to please the Father. Just like Jesus, I do what pleases him. That's what Jesus said. And so when we get that new nature, it wants to please God. So Paul says in verse 12, you work out your salvation by mining the gold. But in verse 13, he says, I want you to know that God is working in you while you're working it out, that you will have a desire to please him and the power to do what he's telling you to do. The will and the to do. Amen. The word for work, just so you'll know, in verse 13, is God that works in you, is energeo. It's where we get the word energy, and it means for the child of God, God is energizing, enabling, and empowering you, even giving you the desire to please him. He's ener Say with me, he's energizing, he's enabling, he's empowering every day inside of me that I would please him and grow in grace. Every single day, the word is working mightily in you. Amen. So we see here that spiritual growth is a cooperative effort between us and God. He gives to us the power and desire to please him, and we in turn cooperate with the grace of God by obeying him. Amen. So, so, when I'm sitting there and let's say the TV's on and the Holy Spirit says, Jeff, go in there and pray. I'm immediately going to respond to the grace of God. I'm going to get up and go. See, I'm in a cooperative effort with the grace of God. See, the promptings of the Holy Spirit happen to all children of God every day. He'll prompt us to forgive. He'll prompt us to pray. He'll prompt us to uh, lift somebody else up in prayer. He'll prompt us to witness. He'll prompt us to do this, that, and the other. He'll prompt us. Several times a day, the promptings of the Holy Spirit come. Now, my part is to cooperate with the extended grace of God on me. 
And, and so I say, yes, Lord. And, and as I grow in the Lord, I obey more and more and more. I don't just slough it off. You know what I've noticed having walked with God a long time? The Lord doesn't cut me the slack he used to. He used to just blanket some things. With, I mean, you know, I can look back and see some of the, you know, just, just carnal, immature things that the Lord would just blink at. But you know what I'm realizing now that I've walked with him a long time? Man, he's pulling the reins tight on me. I mean, if I get just a little bit, he says, where are you going? What you thinking? No, no, I, I fully expect you to obey right now, Jeff. Used to, I, I, and you look up and you go, come on, Lord. He says, no, you're older now in me. Uh, um, I'm not cutting you the slack. I cut somebody in a spiritual diaper. Yeah. You know, Amen. are you hearing me? It, it gets tighter. It gets, it gets, he expects more. He to whom much is given, much is required. So this is what sanctification, folks, is all about. And I close with this. Our cooperation with the grace of God those inner promptings, what the word tells us to do. We cooperate by working out our salvation as he works in us. That's sanctification. And when we do it, it produces transformation in our conduct and in our character. Amen? Amen. Were you blessed tonight? Why don't you stand with me? Amen. How many of you are so thankful? How many of you can say, I'm older in the Lord, and I see what you're saying. He's pulling tight on me too. Right? Tighter than he used to. Right? Right. Used to, you could carry something a couple of weeks without forgiving. Now he says, you forgive this hour, right now. Right? Things like that. Amen. Amen. Let's lift our hands to the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, we just thank you for these powerful, powerful truths in Philippians. Thank you, Lord God, in Jesus' name. That Jesus humbled himself all the way from heaven to the cross. And then from the cross, he was given a crown. Thank you for his matchless example. And Lord, help us to trust you in humbling ourselves. That when time for promotion comes, nothing can stop you from bringing the promotion. If we have humbled ourselves, under the mighty hand of God. Thank you, Lord, for your incredible example of forgiveness, selflessness, sacrifice. Thank you, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that you're working in us every day so that we can work out our salvation. You work in us, Lord, and we work out our salvation. We thank you, Lord, that we're growing every day, every week, every month, every year into the fullness of Christ. Thank you for it. Amen. Let's worship him just with a...